Ringo Lam truly earns the dark in Dark Faced God, which is a nickname he got during his career, as he and brother Nam Yin take aim at the Hong Kong school system in a 1988 shocker that earned a bit of a reputation over the years. My name is Kenny B, with me is Tom KW, and this is the Director Series 22 on Ringo Lam's School on Fire. And hello, hello, people. We are back, continuing to examine the career of the dark-faced god himself, Ringo Lam. And we we are jumping ever so slightly back and forth, but uh, in terms of the main coverage, the bigger discussions, we are trying to hit the key movies, and one such key movie could be argued to be School on Fire. So that's where we're at, and uh, we are here, both of us, Kenny B and Tom KW. So... Ready to uh, ready to discuss anger in a happy chirpy way, I suppose, or something. Yeah, we will try our hardest. Yeah, we could try our hardest to get a good balance. I suppose we don't want it to be all doom and gloom. Yeah, we exactly. Um, it might not be healthy to extend the doom and gloom that uh, the brothers uh, put into this movie, good or not. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's, um, it's a unique one. I don't think there's anything quite like it during this time. It took me by surprise this second time around. That it's uh, it's uniquely angry. I have I have similar similar feelings, definitely. Can as well. Yeah, it's uh, it gets to you because this is not. Uh, manufactured anger by someone who doesn't know what they're doing they they know and they're angry it's a sta- it's a statement to be honest when it feels it feels you know and i mean the discussion point is going to come eventually is it too much or not so uh, we'll get to that because there, there's always a um, a chance if you're doing social commentary that you can go overboard as well and knowing mm. hong kong cinema going overboard <laughs> is their bread and butter <laughs> so who knows how it goes but uh, we'll, we'll get into it we have some sections coming up but first of all some brief contact information this is the director series on the podcast on fire network and we are located on podcastonfire.com along with all our other shows on for instance hong kong cinema new and old we discuss japanese cinema korean cinema we have discussed uh, movies with uh, ninjas in them in a series that i've now concluded and we also do commentaries and bonus episodes every now and again plenty of choices hope you like what's on there on the site and uh, if you're listening uh, for the first time thank you hope you like it and uh, let us know if you have any thoughts on the shows via for instance email podcast on fire at googlemail.com you can reach us over on facebook for instance there's a handy button at the top of our website where You'll be led to our Facebook page. You can leave a like in support. Uh, you can search out Podcast on Fire Network and therefore you'll hit upon our discussion group. So uh, let us know, uh, you know, provide some Ringo Lamb uh, related uh, topics or what have you. Uh, we're a friendly bunch, including Tom KW. I'm the admin, so obviously I'm uh, by default not considered friendly because I got a badge next to my name. <laughs> You're the grammar Nazi of the group. I, I can barely spell number one, but the, the badge feels good, you know. <laughs> like, like it's Dragnet all of a sudden here. Like uh, I can I carry a badge. This is my group. <laughs> uh, but uh, at any rate, uh, join us over on uh, Facebook and hit up hit us up on uh, Twitter if you like. There's a handy button to that. Uh, click the iTunes button to subscribe. 
rate and even leave a comment and finally click the stitcher radio button to stream us either on their website or uh, on the go via the applications that are available uh puff tinder as well make sure to give us a give us a like super like give us a blue star and as for our review links and what have you, I review uh, Hong Kong movies and Taiwanese movies of a variety of uh, genres, regular ones and not so regular ones, appropriate ones and not so in- uh, appropriate ones over at sogoodreviews.com. I do small bite-sized video reviews at sleazykvideo.com and my tweets are available at sogoodreviews. And Tom, our buddy, has a review archive over at vcinemashow.com, alive and well. It's not going anywhere. It's timeless. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's going to it's gonna be linked to, and it's going to be there. And uh, check out his writing on a variety of uh, Hong Kong movies as well. Thanks, man. And as for a rundown of what's to come here in this director's series, uh, first we'll uh, continue to uh, plow through the Ringo Lam filmography by doing quick takes on Prison on Fire 1 and 2. There will, after that, be some background no- notes on the noise school on fire made with uh, sensors primarily. And we then uh, talk Master Batty, Roy Chung, for a bit. And we conclude with our review of School on Fire. So uh, Roy Chung is uh, a major presence in School on Fire that's going to be noticeable and remembered. So this was the perfect uh, place to place the bio of, uh, of the Yeah, movie. he's in all three of these films, and I, I didn't know. So as for the quick takes... Uh, it was sort of hard to uh, deselect some movies from main coverage, but uh, it is a fairly big filmography, and I felt like I wanted to go forward as much as I could. And uh, we've established the quick take format in prior episodes, so we'll continue with that, and therefore we'll get uh, if if there's money to be made from quick takes, then. Back in the day when I uh, had that name for my quick take reviews on yeah, my site, sure, obviously sure I did yours. because I'm clever. I'm clever that way. No, I'm not. So let's leave it at that indeed and get into the quick takes. And A Prison on Fire from 1987, a movie that, uh, you know, many Hong Kong cinema fans have viewed. But uh, shit, it wouldn't be um, out of the question to have this be your first viewing of it so many years on, 20 mm-hmm. years on. By this point, no, 30 years on, for heaven's sake. Uh, so... Uh, Let's do it. Prison of Fire. I, I've seen it a couple of times throughout the years, first on VHS and now DVD. And uh, I think yeah, possibly Ringo Lam and uh, his writer, and that would be his brother, Nam Yin, are de- 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 demonstrating uh, that life inside uh, prison versus the outside is not that drastically different, if at all, versus society. Because uh, politics and, and that environment is uh, fueled by turmoil that exists on both sides of the of the island therefore both sides of the wall it's sort of similar what is depicting here society and prison then again it it feels mostly stripped of massive commentary anyway and the focus is still to deliver an effective brutally violent prison drama and uh, he had showcased that unmatched vision for explosive and gritty violence in city on fire so it turned out it was not a fluke occurrence because Prison on Fire is pretty damn, pretty damn riveting. Uh, uh, the gritty violence starts with, you know, the opening car accident that lands Tony Lungafai's character in mm. prison uh, for manslaughter. You see Roy Chung bashing Xing Foyon's uh, head in and, uh, and being close, sort of an animalistic finale. That's a major highlight. And Ringo is clearly confident in letting this be his voice, uh, the, the violent voice. Uh, 
But the bad bloody times are also of course balanced against even-tempered times as Chai and Fat in particular gets to be the charismatic and fun and respected veteran of the prison who teaches the newbie, played by Tony Leung again, the ropes and he is there to negotiate terms and trying to avoid avoid violent uh, altercations with uh, triads such as William Ho's Mickey which is a memorable character and and it all plays out, Tom, at a blistering pace. I think... um, it moves very fast. Uh, Ringo Lam shows a keen eye for punishing the ensemble cast physically as well. Uh, because it is a physical film. It has action. And the veterans also add veteran presence and faces. Uh, they, they make the realism come to life. And uh, as masterful as and confident as City on Fire is, I think uh, Prison on Fire shows a filmmaker having found and now happily is extending his cinematic voice so it's uh it, it is a classic and very entertaining and uh to a point and over before you know it so uh, that's my quick quick opinion what do you think of what do you think of prison of fire i don't know what else to add to that ken's very eloquently put um yeah I, I agree with agree with most of what you said there um i think this time around for me i did feel the kind of episodic nature of the film, I mean, compared to, I think it, it is quite well paced, but I think it's more casual in terms of scene by scene, um, and it's much more to do with the characters, and much more kind of, I wouldn't say it was a, a character piece necessary, but it kind of gets close to that when it's just basically, it, it just puts the highlights of the relationship between um, Chain of Fat's character and Taylor Cockley's character. Well, 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 you're right in a way because uh, the the conflict seems to be taken care of early in the film and that resurfaces and in the middle it's life yeah. in the prison which i think is deli- deliberate uh, it's not uh, no, bad no no ringo's just happy to kind of um shoot you know these two guys and the kind of chemistry between them and just have that really as you know the main selling point of, of the film so it's much to do kind of with them getting to know each other and as you say it's not whereas the sequel kind of tends to go out and about and give us kind of a bit of a bit more world building um with this one it's more it's very happy just to kind of be content within the prison and and show the relationship and the day-to-day of the uh the characters and it's a fantastic you know set of characters full of faces you know that we all we all know and love um you know tommy wong and uh terence fock and you know a lot of these guys that um you know i said shing for one a lot of these guys that kind of we know and and we're kind of earning their bread and butter at this time, you know, at this time in the kind of Hong Kong film industry. They're all here and they're all kind of adding to the cast and adding to the, the ambiance of the film. But yeah, sweaty film, uh, for sure. <laughs> and it gets sweaty as it goes on. I mean, I don't know. I, I couldn't even imagine um, how, how hot. Reportedly not the most uh, pleasant shoot, uh, if I remember the bio we did. Uh, Ringo was not necessarily Mr. Happy-Go-Lucky on set, and the conditions were were obviously... Uh, they, they were using an uh, either new or abandoned prison, I remember. Or I remember some story about that, or maybe that's the story from Story of Ricky, where they said they used an, a, a new prison, or maybe a library or something. I, I, I remember... Someone yeah. telling the story of that. that that's that ringing a bell. Appealing. That's ringing a bell. That's probably something on the Bay Logan commentary uh, mm-hmm. that that mm-hmm. probably factoid is. It's ringing a bell to me. Um, but yeah, just the kind of close confines of it all, and it's just tight and it's sweaty. And I think while it adds to the feel of the film, it must have been hell for the uh, the filmmakers and the actors um, to film it. But yeah, I mean, I, I agree with what you said. It's 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 just definitely it's, it's obviously different. Um, it's more kind of casual. 
and more of a character piece than say City on Fire is. It builds kind of casually and slowly and calmly up up to a finale, um, and it's got these outbursts of violence that Ringo is known for. And when it comes, it delivers. Um, but it's really it's kind of not about that. It's it's more about, as I say, the characters' relationship. Absolutely, and uh, it, uh, would you deem it a firm classic, or it's one of those great movies that isn't? No, classic? I think it, I think it's 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 a classic. It's a classic in his filmography as well, and it's it's good to see that again at the point in his career, he's still showing different facets of his filmmaking skills. He can make quiet films, he can make more kind of aggressively paced films, um, and you know, also you kind of a bit more kind of wacky, a bit more zany films as as we've you know seen in the first few episodes of this show um some of the other films that we've 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 um reviewed so it's good yeah you're getting kind of still getting a different side of Ringo still although that kind of that main base that kind of political commentary uh and that aggressive violence but sprinkled on something else you know sprinkled on it's sprinkled on a different type of meal for us to uh, for us to enjoy if you know what i mean and a little bit of hope uh, in there as well that uh, not not everybody are going to be uh, consumed by the world. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think it's it's um, yeah. I wouldn't say it's um, you know a happy kind of um, you know a happy kind of film or a kind of a zany wacky kind of film with uh, Chow Yun Fat singing or anything like that. There's no there's no musical numbers uh, interspersed in the film. But there's definitely, yeah, there's, there's, there's signs of hope. And, and I think the the relationship between, you know, our two leads is, is very sweet. And, yeah, it's 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 sweet without being over-sentimental, which I think is is, rang, is, is Ringo down to a... I'd say Ranga, then. Is, uh, is, Ringo, <laughs> is Ringo down to a T. Cool, my friend. Let's move over to Prison on Fire 2. And I, 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 never, I, never, I never ventured into trying to acquire a copy of it, not for any reason other than it it simply didn't uh, reside at the front of my brain that get prison of fire too but here was the opportunity to finally see it uh, it's from 1991 so it took a while before uh, they conceived of a follow-up and uh, they're trying to craft new themes and angles to this follow-up uh, you know and the thoughts and concepts uh, all register as uh, valid and but Ringo has a little bit of trouble trying to elevate Prison of Fire 2, especially versus 1. Uh, not saying it's a bad film, but uh, it's uh, it's not on the same level. Uh, again, once again, uh, once again, uh, Chai is in the middle of conflicts between inmates. This time it's Hong Kong versus mainlanders. He's trying to expose the corruption within the correctional services, which is uh, this time headed by another vicious prison guard. In the first it was Roy Chung. This time it's uh, Elvis Choi. And while he's also making plans to be with his uh, son on the outside, Chai Fat, that is. And uh, he's invested. I mean, he's a movie star, he's a handsome movie star, always uh, charismatic. He has that irresistible charm. And uh, that, that charm is also the character's survival instinct, uh, in a way. And uh, he's also haunted by his conscience, some standard beats like that. Like that. I think his chemistry with the mainland gang boss, played by Chan Chung Jung, which I believe is a Taiwanese actor, uh, that is crucial because they represent that these two sides can get along, yeah. especially when they're outside of the prison walls and there's no internal politics because they're external yeah. now. And th- th- these are enjoyable, mature, and even gentle thoughts by Ringo Lam. And they're actually the better parts of the movie. If you talk about it, it seems daft that they swim in a creek together and have fun together. But they're actually quite gentle, well-conceived little sequences. 
but not that the switch back to hard and gritty violent violence isn't welcome because it is but and the execution is above average for any hong kong film but it's a sequel that doesn't match the heights set by the first movie so it's therefore admirable conceptually but a bit forgettable to be honest uh, so so yeah you, you, your take on prison of fire 2 better than the first or? yeah I, I agree yeah with some so many points there man um I'm kind of around the same um opinion that i don't think it's strong as the first uh i think there's a lot there's a lot that's 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 good and there's a lot that's arguably better than the first one i think the cinematography is a bit fuller you know it's a bit more dramatic i think it's 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 going for a bit more of a uh, wide-angle view kind of on, on the world that these characters are in, in terms of it's not just the prison stuff this time it's like the world outside we get a lot more of Chung uh, Chow Yun-Fat's character's uh, family and, and his son and the situation with him and as you say yeah the um, the gang boss that he befriends uh, was it Victor Victor Han you said uh, um, uh, well well, the, the mainland gang boss is played by Chan Chung Yun the character, yeah, obviously the, 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 they get a lot of screen time together, and um, so yeah, I'm, I'm on the, uh, I'm still on the first one, mate, on uh, on HKMDB. I'm showing a little behind the scenes errors there. Sorry. <laughs> well, there are there are similar faces uh, in uh, this uh, second movie because uh, the, those characters are still in prison. Yeah, we still get obviously the same kind of family. Yeah, the, you know, obviously characters as I say like Victor Han and Tommy Wong, um, still there, but obviously the new face. Uh, you know, this time of Chan Chung Young that that we get a lot of screen time and them together with him and Chow together. Yes, it's more concentrating on the world building and seeing them outside and the kind of hopes and aspirations. Um, you know, and there's there's a few escapes and there's a few um moments kind of on the run which which are really good i think add to the film i think it would be probably not wrong of of ringo but it would be more of the same if he'd just shot the film inside and, and had another you know linear story inside the prison i think it was probably a good idea to go out and kind of shoot it um shoot outside and give us a bit more of, of the world that the characters inhabit but yeah i think the cinematography is a bit fuller it's a bit more you know dramatic and i think the life inside the prison feels a bit ro- richer it's like a bit bigger bigger in scope i mean was that was the budget higher on this one because i think it seems like it to me at times uh not sure but there would be a case for it considering both directors were still uh, the director and the star yeah, was still yeah. big i don't know if this is still it this is still in the wake of ringo lamb uh shooting his mouth off in terms yeah. of tiananmen square massacre i mean the movie got yeah. made but uh, it's it's still something inappropriate he said, and uh, the industry didn't take I that. I think lightly he was or. probably playing it a bit bit safe this one in terms of something that was you know guaranteed to do a bit of box office and get him a bit of work, rather than a violent political statement, as in you know school on fire. So I think he probably did the right thing in terms of trying to get his career back on track uh, with this one. Well, well, well. Most of his anger was in the rearview mirror, anyway. I mean, uh, he made a wild search after School on Fire. Yeah, and he's gone. slowly starting to kind of, yeah, kind of simmer down and and make something that was maybe a bit, a bit more even, <laughs> even tempered. Which I feel like this film, we still get those flashes of violence, but yeah, it's definitely uh, there's there's a, there's a big concentration on the film on the kind, of, uh, you know, on the on the on the humor as well. I think this one's a lot more humorous than the first. Um, I think it's still got the same episodic nature. I think it takes a bit of time to get going, um, and, and we don't really hit the main 
uh, meat and potatoes of the film in terms of plot still later in the film. But I think it's a bit more comical and Chandler Fett's character is a bit more maybe happy-go-lucky and breezy. Although he probably shouldn't be because of the shit that happens in the film, you know, to to him and his family. And and I think Elvis Choi this time um, playing the prison officer uh, definitely gives it a different flavour and it's a lot more brutal um the way he is and the way he interacts with the inmates so yeah it makes it a bit different it has one of the i'm not going to spoil it but it has one of the most obvious sensor cut in any of yeah movies i've seen towards towards the end there's a big chunk of uh, uh graphical body violence that just is plain out plain missing <laughs> yeah it's a shame as well because it gets really intense at that back end and it, and, it, and it builds like you know really high the kind of stakes really high and it's a shame that we don't get quite get the payoff that was originally there. You know what's ironic though, because um, they allowed not a similar scene, but a graphic scene like that in Prison on Fire One, without yeah, yeah, hesitation. Yeah. Uh, what, what happens towards the end with Chow and Roy Chung? And in 1991, they deemed their body horror like this uh, too much for the rating. Yeah, I really wonder, like with 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 the whole thing uh, this time in Ringo's career, where they were kind of watching him more. You know, whether it was, you know, the sensors were kind of coming after him a bit more, um, you know, after kind of, we'll probably get it, we'll get into it with School on Fire, but obviously that was a bit battered by censorship. Um, maybe that after that, they were kind of keeping a, a closer eye on him and, and kind of what he's doing in terms of filmmaking, because yeah. it, 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 it seems like he's definitely, he's got the, the budget there to kind of make a film that's a bit more, you know, that's kind of, I wouldn't say commercial fair, because it's not made... You know, I don't think it's just at its heart commercial. I think it's it's definitely got his signature on it, um, but it's less political and, and kind of less massively violent as as you know the previous couple of films he did. So maybe that was what was going on at the time. Maybe we'll never know, Kenny. But yeah, there's not a, t- a ton of voices on the making of and the censorship and all of that because uh, Prisoner of Fire Two is not really spoken of that much when no. bringing up Ringo, which which obviously leads us to school on fire it's it's spoken of when it comes to ringo because of the really the hoopla surrounding it mm. it's it's a watched film granted but um many people remember it for it being uh unavailable in complete form uh, yeah but uh we'll get into that and to that and this is the school on fire section and the movie is from 1988 and the plot from the love hk film review of the film goes as follows the character of chu yun fong played by fen yun witnesses a triad beating and amidst tons of pressure from cops uh, lam ching ying and tommy wong uh, being the main cops here and her teacher because she's a student uh, who's played by Damien Lau, by the way, the teacher. She reports that crime that she witnesses. However, young triad boss Brother Smart, played by Roy Chung, gets annoyed and terrorizes her into paying a 30000 Hong Kong dollar legal fee, which is really just pr- protection money, and things can only get worse from there, and they do. <laughs> it all goes <laughs> to hell, as Love HK Film usually writes in their <laughs> reviews, their, their little trademark uh, phrase that they even write, it all goes to hell in caps, and then TM at the top of it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> trademark also. Is that a bit like your quick take, TM? You need to start putting that on the... Uh... On the uh, on the bios and stuff, man. I'm sorry, but before you hit the bios, put that TM on there, man. You yeah, know yeah, I got it. I mean, it's the smartest thing to man. do, obviously. <laughs> Cosa knows his stuff. I just watch movies and uh, and uh, waffle on on the internet. That sounds like a good time. We enjoy it. 
Not too bad. Not too bad. <laughs> I wish I was actually more waffles though. If I'm getting a bit hungry. It's it's like you're waffling without lack of waffles. It's uh, it's quite disheartening, Kim. Uh, anyway, as for background to School on Fire, uh, after two on fire hits in the form of City on Fire and Prison on Fire, Ringo Land went from undercover to be incarcerated to a well where a number of those things can you know act as a seed for your subsequent life uh, and you know uh, you you start earlier than in those other movies there about being undercover a cop or uh, being in prison but here it goes back earlier uh, to the school system because a lot of things get born and bred in school good or bad and in this case it's it's the bad he's looking at the system the corruption of it all and in an interview with Eastern Kicks, uh, Ringo Lam talks of the influence his brother Nam Yin had on the realism on his film. Uh, on his film, so yes, Ringo uses a gritty tone, but he says his brother was responsible for the more realistic tone across Prison on Fire and School on Fire. And Lam said that, uh, in in his words, my writing tend to be more romantic and minimal, while my brother likes to hit harder and drive the nail home. And uh, School on Fire was conceived as a harsh critique of the Hong Kong school system and the ripples of um, and the ripples of problems that affects the pupils' lives uh, due to the influence of triads in and around the school and uh, and the influence during the students' uh, lives uh, during off hours, so to say. And as one critic sum, summed it up, uh, School on Fire that is. Quote, a savage indictment of the Hong Kong school system, portraying it as a forced march that batters students into submission, stuffing their skulls with useless facts before spitting them out into a city where jobs are few and the future is bleak. And I don't think that's too exaggerated. It's pretty much a part of the, it's, it's a good res, uh, written response to the darkness in the movie. This uh, political and violent cinematic stance didn't go unnoticed by Hong Kong censors, and uh, they required more than 30 cuts after the movie was submitted. Uh, Ringo protested the need for this, but ultimately conceded. And it also ultimately did decent box uh, box office figures, uh, but decidedly less than his last two films. And critics and even politicians slammed the film for being socially irresponsible, which, uh, you know, some hit upon the notion that the film glamorized the triad lifestyle and glamorized violence which I call bullshit on there's nothing fun about any of this no, there's no, nothing no. glamorizing it's the young and dangerous movies that make yes. the triad lifestyle seem cool because you got these Definitely, good yeah. looking guys who hit people with lawn chairs <laughs> that doesn't seem too <laughs> dangerous right it, it it's just even in 88 I don't know where they came up with the fact that this is glamorizing violence it, nothing seems uh like, uh, if it's a choice, it's a choice out of necessity, right? To earn money yeah. some, some yeah. in an immoral way, but it's nothing to like, not at all. With uh, Ringo Lam voicing his dislike for the treatment of his movie, he also got the rep of being, so to say, difficult. Mm. Um, and I, as for the cuts, uh, this not only affected violence, but various scenes of uh, action and dialogue... Um, containing or having references to uh, obscene or offensive content like uh, gambling, drugs, corruption and other illegal activities, that was trimmed physically or orally censored. Like they, they put the beeps on the soundtrack to, to, to disguise some of this. And uh, if the Tai Seng Rainbow VHS is anything to go by, it is the longest version currently in circulation. The cuts amount to about three minutes, but I have read as much as six minutes were taken out from the Hong Kong version that Ringo and producers submitted. Uh, but in other places, uh, over 30 minutes were removed in, in other Asian territories. 
which is kind of crazy. So it make the film like just over an hour or something, which is just like you wonder what's the point of screening so it uh, by that yeah, point. Yeah. You know? It would be so obvious that it was not the film that it was supposed to be. Yeah, because we were talking like probably chunks of footage, like minutes worth of footage. Uh, sometimes the entire scenes just lifted. Incoherent, yeah. Like just wouldn't be able to follow it. Uh, the theatrical version for Hong Kong was expectedly released on Laserdisc with the same amount of trims. Uh, the later Joyce's VCD and DVD essentially were the same, but I read it has tiny little differences, meaning reinstated bits. Uh, but for instance, a memorable end piece of violence, um, that's still missing from VCD and DVD. Uh, but a pre- present on the rainbow VHS that Tai Seng distributed in America. It was the movie was not as nominated or awarded as the prior on fires, if you will, but nevertheless it won one Hong Kong Film Award, which was for actress Sarah Lee in the Best Supporting Actress category. So difficult, difficult, difficult. But uh, we'll, we'll get back to reviewing the movie. But uh, the actor that makes an impression—he's the loudest, but he makes an impression because he, he is a good actor. He's Roy Chung, and uh, Tom K. W. is here to tell us a little bit about the career of Roy Chung, leading up to working with Ringo Lam multiple times and uh, what happened after that run of movies. So, take it away, take it away, to- toy. I was about uh, to say, Tom, toy, <laughs> toy Roy, take it away, Tom, boy, toy. <laughs> Uh, okay, I'm going to clear my throat. Come and gather around, children. Let me tell you about the tale of uh, of Roy, the Chung, the Chungster. And by the way, before we start, look up a recent picture of Roy Chung kids and then have a little <laughs> guess of how how old he is, and you'd be wrong. 26. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. When I, when I drop this uh, day of birth, it's gonna be, there's going to be gasps. There's going to be audible gasps in the audience. Um, well, yeah, Roy Chung, coming from a big family of seven siblings, himself the sixth to pop out. Uh, Roy Chung Yu Young was born in Hong Kong in 1963. Homeboy is 54, if you can believe that. Well, if Simon Yam can be 60 plus and still look like Jesus the way he does, Christ. then yes, yeah. Roy can be 54. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, so he's 54, if you can believe that. Um, carved from the finest hunk tree known to man. Never really considering a career in acting, but like a lot of guys in Hong Kong his age, idolizing Bruce Lee, uh, Roy started modeling. I'm assuming around the early 80s, because um, from there he eventually got his breakout role in director Young Fan's Lost Romance in 1986. And then from then on, he pretty much immediately started his working career with our boy Ringo, which led on to appearing in all three of the original On Fire movies and Wild Search. And obviously, yeah, add, add to that, uh, On Fire, Prison On Fire 2 as well. So he does pop up in that, as we mentioned before. Um, don't want to spoil it, but it's a bit of a lull. <laughs> it, 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 it's a lull in terms of it's going downwards, so it's a bit of a lull. <laughs> yeah, it's but it's lull and lull. Uh, no, it's it's a lull. It's a good, it's a good little lull. I don't know whether he's the same character though. We might have to look into that. Yeah, that, that's slightly confused me, but it, it, for all intents and purposes, uh, if you're wondering, listeners, it is a cameo. It's a cameo. It's a cameo. Um, but yeah, so meeting Ringo, he first met him in 1986 uh, when an assistant director asked him to come along to the casting of City on Fire. Roy was completely unaware of the project or director until he showed up, as the said assistant director had not made reference to Lamb's Chinese name, which Roy himself says he would have known at that point. He obviously must have referred to him as Ringo, and uh, yeah, he didn't know who he was, so he came in, he sat down to form a line reading whilst a smoking, and in Roy's own words, rather serious director, stared at him in a funny way. Although he said he felt very uncomfortable, 
he was invited back to the next day under the pretense of another go at the audition, at which instead Ringo asked him to sign on to do Sea on Fire. Get looked at in a funny way and you're in the movies for day after. That's... <laughs> if I... I mean, if I had as many like starring roles as looks that I've had in a funny way, I'd I'd be I'd be in Hollywood right now, man. To be honest, jeez. Um, and initial feelings obviously shifted between Ringo and Roy, and he mentions um, it was like meeting a family member because both of us were born and grew up in Hong Kong. It was easy for me to understand what he wanted. He was like my brother, and vice versa. I saw him as an older brother and my mentor. And he does go on his description of the director and. Before it gets all confusing, I am paraphrasing from the interview on the Hong Kong Legends disc of City on Fire, which is a good little interview. So he goes on in his description of the director to solidify this image of a possibly tense and pressurised but passionate and heartfelt uh, working method we associate with Ringo, but does state he benefited a lot from that working style. Uh, he says, I felt very comfortable working with Ringo, and I can instantly understand what Ringo wants. So, um, yeah, it's a great interview on uh, Hong Kong Legends Disc of Sea Fire, which that story's from that goes further into the filming of that flick specifically and uh, Ringo and Roy's relationship on that set. But we will leave it there as we're talking School on Fire, baby. Yeah, it, it's, it's funny too when you look back on City on Fire. Well, he plays a cop. How bad can he be? He can he can be pretty bad. He's the uh, he's not the uh, uh, clean and uh, rational cop in City on Fire, so it fits Roy's typecasting that he was very good at uh, performing within you know yeah and i think obviously he went on to have that kind of hunky kind of you know image in the 90s um the kind of pin-up look but really in his first few roles yeah he's you know he's in this film in school of fire specifically he's a piece of shit really and you know same city on fire he's kind of playing a good guy but kind of a bad guy in terms of you know personality and the way he acts etc so yeah i think it would it would be an image that were kind of um kind of if move on to was a kind of pin-up kind of you know look um but i'll talk about that now as i go on in my bio not everybody who gets these bad guy roles excel at them and punch through but roy was very good at that uh, working with ringo and hearing you talk about his comfortable working relationship it's clear that they had an idea of how to make the bad guys that he played punch through rather than just standard bad guy bastard yeah, definitely, and obviously he must have, and he must have been able to impress, you know, uh, Ringo to that degree that he would cast him in, you know, all three, four of these films, and obviously they got the working relationship together. They kind of got their relationship, working relationship down down to a T because obviously they excelled in in these films, these little runner films here, and they're kind of the ground zero for for Roy, as it were, and his career would just kind of shoot from there, I suppose. So yeah, let all will continue. Um, with me bio um so yeah so around the same time she was nominated for best supporting actor at the hong kong film awards for prison on fire and like i mentioned earlier carried on this initial part of his career by appearing in the aforementioned ringo films the fantastic uh the big heat which was 1988 the year after the much maligned sequel to tiger on beat <laughs> and uh continuing the ringo connection partly with a supporting role in la parte cinco and the last sequel for then <laughs> of the wildly popular um, Aces Go Places series. So throughout the 90s, he continued his very strong streak of awesome roles in crime dramas and trial films, but found time to dabble in the comedy or mole tao genre with Yeah Boy Stevie Chow in uh, both Fight Back to School and The Magnificent Scoundrels, playing similar roles as he, is, as he does here. So he's still kind of, you know, in a similar role, in a similar kind of character, um, which hasn't broke out just yet. 
so although saying that those two films that I just mentioned are quite physically slapstick, um, sorry, they're saying that the, they, those two are quite physically slapstick and quite universal entries in Charles' filmography rather than um, very local comedy-wise films, which I'm sure you would agree with, Kenneth. Yeah, uh, I don't remember many episodes of Scoundrels, but I have no real memory of any Stephen Chow film being 100% just incoherent for me as a non-Cantonese uh, speaker or reader. So uh, that, yeah. uh, that that probably is very true, that there, there's a lot of physical comedy to appreciate there. Yeah, because I don't remember, you know, uh, Roy really getting kind of into the old Mei Tao kind of, you know, lots and lots of kind of silly talk, etc. I remember it being quite physical and, and funny. So, yeah, so he's, he's he had... The live-action remake of Yoshiaki Kawajiri's Wicked City on his CV2, um, interesting enough, from 92. Um, and then a film we've covered on the show from one of our favourites here on Podcast on Fire, Baby Kirk, Organised Crime and Tribe Bureau, and then appearances in the massively popular Young and Danger series, which, um, you know, in finding the time to pop up to rock the shit out of a sleeveless vest jacket and party hard with his sensual droopy pineapple leaf boy band hair. I mean, it's a, it's a good look and it's kind of where the whole 90s boy band image, I think, started for him. The kind of pin-up uh, image started. So, And to be honest, what filmography this man has as, he's, as he ends a decade with Possibly a couple of two greatest things on his CV. Uh, Gordon Chan's Beast Cops in 98 and Johnny Toe's The Mission the following year. So, I mean, you know, ends the 90s kind of big and beautiful there. He turned he turned into a natural actor based on Beast Cops. Very, um, yeah. the, it, 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 the role didn't call for be you from 10 years ago go ahead and shoot that. No, it, it was a very natural, comfortable actor on screen now. Uh, underplayed even definitely yeah the evolution's kind of there i think i mean yeah after the young and dangerous um series and then he's kind of maturing and he's kind of in different roles uh you know more yeah yeah more kind of you're more comfortable kind of maybe in his own skin and more comfortable kind of being himself on on screen rather than you know characters it's kind of a it's obviously he's he's playing a character but maybe he's giving himself kind of more of his own personality and more himself kind of towards the back end of the nineties and just being a bit more comfortable and natural. Um, mm-hmm. which is a, yeah, which is a good evolution to see. And, and yeah, filmography is kind of, you know, crazy from the late eighties up until the, the late, the late nineties is, um, it's a lot of gold in there. So yeah, so going on to the millennium, Roy kept the train chugging throughout the millennium with Andrew Lau's cyber shit fest, the Avenging fist. Uh, if you'd like it put more eloquently than that, check out my review on V cinema, plug, pluggity plug, plug. Mm-hmm. And an appearance in arguably the biggest Hong Kong franchise at that point in time, Infernal Affairs, with him playing the strong, silent type in the second instalment. No lights. In two, yeah, nothing. Uh, in two thousand and seven, he got back together with the Toe Meister and appeared in Exiled, the sequel to the Mission. And then, yeah, really, like now, it's kind of getting on to kind of some some of his extra extracurricular activity. Um, he's been very quiet recently. 2014, he was arrested for possessing Ziganja, the fucking lad. Uh, and the same year, clocked in his only movie appearance of the decade, Jeff Lau's Just Another Margin. So, yeah, Jeff Lau, you're kind of your frequent uh, Stevie Chow collaborator. Um, appeared in that for him, but that was the only thing he kind of he got in that decade, which is, which is a bit strange. But from digging a bit deeper, his low profile and lately on screen may be explained by the fact he was plying his trade away in a mainland TV drama in 2009 that suffered from a spinal disc herniation, which doesn't sound great. Nothing to do with 
records, um, apparently to do with your back, and which left him bedridden for a while after. There's a lot of speculation on the internet that he's working in a restaurant in Taiwan or something because of the drug scandal. And apparently China bans films with actors who have engaged in drug use or prostitution, communist twats. Well, look at what happened with uh, Jackie Chan's uh, son, JC. I think uh, him and the other actor, they were arrested in China for marijuana possession. And it led to the other actor being cut out out of a, um, out of a children's movie completely. They were like reshot a particular movie that actor was in a couple of years ago. So, uh, yep, it's, it's uh, zero tolerance there. It's crazy, man. You know, it's supposed to be the fucking 21st century, but yeah, apparently people still, <laughs> countries are still like that. So, less said that about the better, better, I suppose. So, I'm surprised they have any films. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as we were saying off air, Kenny, I suppose if, you know, an actor's extracurricular activities is kind of, you know, kept in the back of your mind, then you probably wouldn't watch, you know, anything from any actor because everyone's human and everyone's got their faults. Yeah, and uh, and I'm sure they're handling their highs in a perfectly sensible matter privately, right? So uh, that's he why. Can do what I, he wants, can't he? Yeah, that's why yeah. I don't judge. Do whatever the fuck he wants, you know. End of the day. Yeah, but apparently he's okay. He's fighting fit. Um, because since then, if you have a little Google search, you can get him. There's there's pictures of him. He's been seen knocking about with Jordan Chan, uh, attending Daniel Wu's wedding, which which sounds like a good time. And opening hair salons <laughs> and other wild shit like that. And apparently he's massive in Taiwan. So my theory is he's been over there just chilling the fuck out, looking at his filmography, you know, op- opening up HKMD on his laptop, just going, <laughs> just smoking a fatty, going. I think I think that's enough. Like, he's just like I'm, I'm done. I think I think I've put in a good effort there. Like he's done it, man. Like I mean, you know, who else is there to work with? You know, he, he's thrashed it. I say God bless Roy. Uh, and whatever he wants to get up to, um, other than acting, he can do it because he's he's a legend. It doesn't ex- it doesn't excuse him because he's a legend, but the fact that he's a human being, he can do whatever he wants outside of his acting career. And hopefully, he can get by. They're doing, uh, you know, businesses. Say and what have you. Yeah, yeah. He's got that. He's got that young and dangerous. He's got that poster money. Like he's got he's got that pinup money from that. He's still sitting on that. So. Um, yeah, I think I think you'll be all right, mate. To be honest, the, the wonderful thing about that series of films, I, I didn't particularly like those first three films, but I know for a fact that if you get killed off, you're still welcome for the next part next year, right? Because uh, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, like, like like if Simon Yam gets killed off in one or whatever, uh, he can be a different character in the other ones. Uh, Shuchi, uh, I think, gets killed off in one of the parts, gets recast in another role, and no one bats an eyelid because it's on constant about they're back. They're cool. Yeah, I mean, and there's there's so many spin-offs, and it's like you know, if you didn't fit in with the the main uh, film series, or you got killed, as you say, you, you could have your own spin-off set in set in the past or anything like that, or set in the future, even you know, whatever you want. I think there's yeah, there's endless um, kind of possibilities with that franchise. So he's alright. You'll come back. You'll come back for it. Wasn't it? Wasn't they supposed to be doing an anniversary film or something like that? Wong Jing was supposed to be doing. Or I was just completely making that up. Young and just dangerous? Misinformation again. Yeah, apparently. Uh, I don't know, because I don't care. And we just... <laughs> okay, moving on. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> That's it. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm quite a fan of the spin-offs I've seen of Young and Dangerous. Like yeah, the, the, yeah, the creativity yeah. that uh, they allow um, are much more fun. Like I saw Portland Street Blues. Very yeah, yeah. good drama. Yeah, yeah. And, and a little Young and Dangerous cameo by the end for the brawl. That's fine. Uh, but um, obviously, no, I wasn't too much on board on those. I, I like that they are cultural phenomenons, but that's about it. Yeah, it's interesting to um, kind of see sometimes, um, 
you know what was popular at the time and obviously kind of you know to the mid 90s that was that was massive that kind of glamorization of the of the triad lifestyle so and really i should state this like it's versus school on fire that that's an example that glamorizes trial trial yeah, activity yeah. but when you watch young and dangerous may, maybe you won't feel that it's just that they, they single out school on fire but hey like fast forward 10 years that's going to be something that you're really not going to like then i think def- they're probably different sensibilities you know at, at, at that point maybe i think i don't know maybe you know saying that maybe it was a bit more relaxed at, at that point in terms of you know, the youth culture and, and stuff like that. I, I don't know, you know, who knows. But it's, it's interesting what kind of takes off at a certain time and what's okay, you know, with the general public and what's not. And, and I mean, shit, even if you look at A Better Tomorrow, you can argue that that looks great. 40 minutes, at least. Being a triad is great. You look great and then you, you get your leg shot out and then everything is shit again. Yeah, well, it inspired, you know, it inspired as a sequel, you know, gets into it, inspired, you know, the kids wearing the dusters and, and the glasses and... You know, obviously that was a big, big inspiration. But ah, man, it's it's you know who's who's to say yeah, you know what's yeah. what's glamorization and what's not. It's not me. If you are focusing too much on that, you're just going to find too many movies where that you deem inappropriate, right? So, yeah. so, so, so one should be a little bit relaxed uh, in terms of this, um, you know, because they're not fla- they're not flashing it subliminally on screen or anything. Join us. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not like a like they live situation. Like you put the glasses on while the films on. Exactly. Like it comes with three D like, glasses. Triad, not triad. <laughs> triad banker. Triad banker. Off and on. Off and on. Uh, you know, I just, I just trust Uncle Ken, and uh, I, I believe what you say, Ken. Eh? Um, whatever Ken says, apart from his Nazi leanings, I agree with. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> gonna need to censor stuff on this show. <laughs> Beep. We're going to orally censor uh, the, the director's series uh, because School on Fire was. So we're going to orally censor this stuff. Anyway, let's move it to the review of School on Fire and our uh, quick takes on it. And uh, as for my quick take, I think it's quite thoroughly engaging and unpleasant. Uh, Ringo and Wright and Amjean goes for the juggler in their social critique, but mostly makes it very involving and shocking with only select moments being too over the top and punishing some dramatic moments. It's a tough classic and an unusually realistic Hong Kong movie. Uh, seeing it in 2017, it just uh, it just feels like someone made a documentary, but it's a movie because it it has it doesn't feel like a movie. It doesn't have uh, c- cinematic tricks. Or anything, um, and, yeah. uh, and and a cast of mostly unknowns in uh, or uh, not a great stars in the leads and all of that. Anyway, that's my quick opinion for now. Uh, School on Fire. What's your quick take on it? Uh, first of all, yeah, I think you you, you got an, you bang the nail on the head there. Um, I think it's relentlessly bleak. You know, it goes for realism rather than kind of you know kind of snappy kind of entertainment, and it's arguably. Ringo's best film. It's arguably kind of his masterpiece. It's like you know, deer. It's like the deer hunter or something of his filmography. It's one of those films that's amazing and powerful uh, and really potent. But it's not something you want to return to all the time, just because of how kind of yeah, depressing and how kind of um, sad it is for pretty much everyone involved in the film. Mm-hmm. So it, it, characters wise, I say not, it's, it's not like, it's not like the, uh, the poltergeist, got like poltergeist cursed or anything. It's like, you know, in, in terms of the actual characters themselves, it's just, it's not a good time for anyone. And yeah, it's, it's probably, you yeah, not to say it's his most entertaining or it's easy to watch, but it's his most powerful statement as a director kind of arguably. 
And amazingly enough, uh, I mean, I was going to ask this, but I think you answered it, that amazingly enough, the extreme anger manages to be relevant, seemingly relevant. I mean, I didn't live this, but seemingly relevant social commentary that isn't obscured by too much anger. I got a sense that you didn't feel like he's stating one or two things too many and that obscures his points. No, I don't. I don't think so, man. Like, I think, I think, I think you, you and me have had conversations in the past about kind of like, kind of art house films or directors that, you know, maybe kind of are a bit more, I don't know, lenient with kind of what they're they're putting out in terms of the the, the things they want to say or the statements they want to make. It's almost like that fifty fifty, isn't it? It's like, okay, what's you know entertaining and what do people want to watch, you know, or what do I want to say? It's always a hard line to walk for a director. Um, and obviously, I think sometimes films fall into maybe them, the director kind of the director kind of maybe pouring out not too much, but kind of maybe too much for an entertaining film. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think with Ringo, he's pouring out enough to kind of make it entertaining, engrossing, but he's also saying a lot there. There's a message there, but it's not banging you on the head. It's kind of there in the background. It's kind of food for thought, yeah. but it's also a kind of relentlessly kind of powerful journey at the same time it's like a ride um for like you know an an hour and 45 it's it's like it's a kind of a ride and a a look into this particularly you know this particular um this particular thing that Ringo obviously kind of wants to shed a light on which is as you said before the kind of the school system in Hong Kong and kind of what was wrong with it at at that time and and kind of shedding light on it and showing it for what it was which is you know it it takes balls man and, and that balance that it's hard, uh, like, like between being uh, uh, communicating clearly what you're doing but not being too over the top with it he manages to to get that done and when you list his techniques of getting that done it seems like he's going over the top but when you watch the movie it's not like that i mean the the title is written in red calligraphy you know blah 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 blah, blah. you know it's hardly subtle but it doesn't feel like that when you're watching the movie that that someone is banging us over the head with it too much despite us getting it 30 minutes earlier or anything Uh, so he he makes the content visible and even over the top and talked of extensively but it doesn't feel insecure in the way he's communicating mm, it i mean yeah, yeah. We, we we get the first snapshots of uh, life in school you know in between lessons you know we, we're talking teenagers we're talking hormones we're talking teenage teenagers reading uh erotic novels and stuff like that and being a general uh, little um Little shits. <laughs> little, little, little shits, little bad kids too. But but there's also attitudes between, you know, gangs in the school, you know, between the girls, between the boys, uh, you know, everyone like school can be like. Globally, there, there's there, there, there's going to be factions here. Like there, there's a girl gang that doesn't like another girl gang. And this is what Ringo sort of shoots in almost a documentary fashion here. He's just mm. po- uh, pointing, pointing the camera and uh, watch, letting us watch what, is being born and bred in the school between the students but then you have the triad influence as well on top of that that people come at it with a triad attitude and they have influence a little bit where they can call upon the triad bodies to have stuff sorted in school and it's an attitude that's hovering around society 
and school, you know, and school and society is the same thing, you know. A lot of that is evident early. You you take notes of that early. There's, uh, you know, there's a 1997 nugget thrown in there that you should just leave leave this problem to someone else because this problem is just mounting, mounting, mounting. Mm. You know, uh, I'm glad that all that is available and communicated well. And I think one reason it is that originally we got pretty decent subtitles for this movie. Thank yeah, God, there's yeah. not a lot of slip-ups where you just go, what is he trying to communicate here? Yeah. You, you get the old classic, you know, subtitles on a white background situation, but that's the nature of the beast. But for mo- for the most part, it's like written, you know, it's written well. A few spelling mistakes, but it's written well. It's 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 easy to understand and, you know, you can follow it all. And uh, yeah, it, it, I'm, I'm glad as well, man, that it's not one of those films that, you know, you kind of you lose yourself a bit because of the subtitles. It's a movie with intent, so that that element needs to be. Um, it's important that that gets right. And uh, another thing they get right is casting here, supporting casting, especially uh, from the male veteran faces. You know, looking at Damien Lau by image alone as the the teacher with the glasses, and he's not this teacher that's going to make his uh, pupils uh, submit to his uh, to his. Uh, teachings or anything and i i love seeing actors like damien go from what they were doing in genres in the 70s and the 80s stuff. Yeah, exactly yeah. i mean and you know two movies that people remember damien from they're they're uh, sword play movies uh you know lost her for chivalry duel to death yep. and then you have them appearing in movies like this very solid even very good and it's no surprise tom that they're very good because they've just been honing their presences and their acting. I mean, it applies to Damon. It, it applies to it applies to Lam Ching Ying, and think of that for a minute, Tom. Neither of those two are trying too hard. They're just they're they're an inhabiting characters. Yeah, and, and away and away from as you said, like the kind of the sword play image from Damon Lau, and obviously away from the kind of Mister Vampire image on Lam Ching Ying's kind of side as well so they're not playing kind of maybe the strengths or what people were used to seeing them play but they're still completely natural in the role as you know teacher and, and cop respectively not like a pasted on image or anything not at all no not at all it, again it's like it's that, it's that kind of naturalism there and and i think it, it benefits from this this film benefits from not having one lead i mean you could you could argue that um the film obviously is about uh, Fenny Fenny Yun's character. You could argue that it's about her and any emphasis on her, but really it's the kind of the cast, the big ensemble cast that really makes the film itself. It kind of goes from kind of point to point in terms of it looks at the the police and the problem. It's basically like, like I think all these all three of these films that we're, we're talking about tonight are um, about power struggles and kind of like the way that that the life is for the police and the teachers and obviously the triads and the way they kind of interact and the power struggle between them and the kind of lineup within those three separate entities. You know, we kind of have uh, from, from the top all the way down and kind of the people on the bottom and the people on top. And, and mm-hmm. it, it's an interesting look at that. And it, it's not just kind of three separate characters going up against each other. It's the school versus the police, you know, versus versus the parents you know it, it, it's like that and obviously the the kind of the, the, the kids being stuck in the middle of it all kind of being um you know succumbing to kind of the power within that kind of being pulled in and pulled there especially with any Ewan's character so i think it benefits from that it's not just it's not like 
each one of the power bodies has just one face. It, it's like a kind of a big separate unit, all with great kind of you know character character actors in those um, in those units. And obviously, joining Lam Ching Ying, you got kind of Tommy Wong, you know, close to him, and then obviously Roy Chung's you know the big the big bad guy, and then you got his kind of minlins and minlins minions, <laughs> um, and uh, yeah. So so I, th- I think that's really what what makes it man for me really. I think it, it's it's again it's just such a good exploration of those those different facets of uh, of school life. And all of those force and many more kind of explode in one early scene, uh, which is the uh, brawl and attack that happens in the streets. Not in school, mind you, in the streets. And there's something about Ringo's realistic approach that kicks off this scene. I mean, for one, you, before it does, you see the girls being courted by the boys. And then all of a sudden, boom, they're attacked out of the blue. And it's not a set piece that we... Uh, now that's the set piece. No, we're just watching, like, shock and awe. And and I, I try to think of, like, Ringo working with his um, action directors that I read that he applied, like, a meticulous approach to conveying brutality on screen. And it sure feels like it because it's impactful the way people are thrown over these uh, railings uh, alongside the st- uh, alongside the, the street with the cars, the the way they're slapped around, the way they're thrown on top of windshields, and there's knife violence, there's bystanders getting in the way as well, and it's all almost like all anger in one scene alone that society is being affected by. All of this uh, society is getting in the way. Some of that stuff where people, uh, where bystanders get it, that, that was actually cut from the Hong Kong version. So it's a kickstarter for the plot, and it's an indicator where he's taking the violence as well. The, the kind of feel violence is going to have. There's no slow motion blood here. There's just sound effects and gritty, real, we- real and well executed stunts by the team. And uh, and I mean even the scene within here where one of the guys gets um, hit by the car and he fucks up his back as well and he's twitching and he's lying in a pool of blood and and then you know subsequent to that the scenes all, all, all the, the crowded that people are looking on which is either real people looking onto the film or they actually placed a lot of people to act as citizens looking onto this violent scene but mm. it doesn't feel artificial or set up and that scene is just a, you know, kick and slap, and uh, he, he's making his sort of technical statement and commentary all in one here. That I'm gonna take the violence here. Are you prepared for it? Yeah, it's it's. I think I think yeah, you brought up an interesting point there with the kind of the bystanders, and I think it's it, it's good. It really helps benefit the film and the scenes itself. Like obviously, they just flow with the narrative. The scenes of violence, do the kind of outbursts. And I think it's good. It kind of mixes the lines between documentary and, you know, kind of a, a narrative film because it's just the way that it's shot and the way it kind of flows. It kind of blurs the lines. And I think it benefits the film itself because it brings that kind of realism into it. We don't just stop for an action scene. It's just everything flows and, and you know, the characters are talking and it, it goes from one one uh, location to the next and it just kind of flows and narrative flows with, with the kind of action and the outbursts and, it it just flows, man. It's just, I think you, that scene particularly, you can see the well, the the kind of climax of that scene and the aftermath. You can see the duress and stress the police and the teachers are under, and I think it's fairly early on. Mm-hmm. This is established so all throughout the film. The kind of power struggle is just, you know, fantastically portrayed from that kind of very very scene, that very get go, that first scene. You kind of 
following it from there, the kind of struggles that everyone's having and, and the interaction between the three, the three kind of power units is good, man. And and the sad thing is that the students that are recruited with uh, probably fancy words that uh, you'll get to wear fancy clothes and we'll pay you. They're literally referred to as foot soldiers and dogs later yeah. on. That yeah. uh, they're, they're disposable. Uh, they're brought up, brought in because they're they're not important. Uh, they can execute stuff for us, right? Mm. And, and that's the sad, probably very true thing that uh, someone like Brother Smart, Roy Chung's character, is not seeing uh, them as an asset, but rather a dis- well, at best, a disposable temporary asset until we can bring in another word, disposable one that either dies or gets messed up for life. Uh, yeah, and I think that's again it goes to the point of it's not glamorizing that lifestyle. That if you are young and you're going into the triads and you're kind of starting on the bottom rung, you're you know yeah you're a piece of shit. You know you're not you you dealing drugs and you're you know swallowing kind of drugs and and transporting them and selling them and you really are treated like shit. You're at the bottom of the ladder and I don't know how that's kind of glamorizing it. You know the lifestyle. It's kind of saying kids if you want to go straight into the Straight into the uh, the triads after school, and this is where you're going to start. You know, you're going to risk your life for for very little. So I think you know it, it's 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 very kind of realistic in in that aspect. Um, you know, especially with the outcome of of the characters and what happens, it's it's it can be no way said that you know for from these lifestyles that people have a happy ending. And it's gone so far that the cops need to think of alternate ways of dealing with triads or a particular conflict because at one point uh, Lam Ching Ying has a scene where he's rather cheekily sits down at the same table as yeah. uh, Roy Chung's characters and essentially is acting like a, nego- an, a negotiator as well to try and steer, steer this by working a little bit outside of the box and maybe outside of the rule book they have to cross those lines a bit those kind of fine lines have to get crossed a bit to you know for kind of for the power for the power back to kind of take control and it, it reminded me uh, when I saw it, it was a story shortly afterwards here about it. They did a, a long article, series of articles about a uh, family of, uh, well, criminals really that sort of rule and guide a small community here in Sweden, uh, not my community. Mm. And, and at one point they had meetings with uh, local police officers uh, to sort of talk it out and see where can how can we move forward because we're in a cycle of violence mm. and you know you reach that point where this is so infected that we need to have that discussion not to uh, give in but rather involve the law and the unlawful to a degree and see how we can move on to avoid the cycle of violence because arrests and uh, and uh, giving people sentences isn't getting us anywhere yeah, it's like neighborhood watch. Like you know, does his people, does his hooded gentleman on the front garden uh, letting their dog shit? You know, it's like him on top of it. You know, working in you know, kind of working kind of together with 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 the kind of the police and the community, etc. You know, I think that's that's what you're kind of getting at, isn't it? It's, re- it's really about communication rather than kind of you know us against them. You know, go going against it. Exactly, and and that's what Lam Ching Ying is doing. Is being a forward thinker in that regard, even though it's not the solution that's going to make everything uh, happy go lucky towards the end or anything. It's realistic in that sense as well. That there's no, it's not black and white. It's very, you know, it's very grey. It's like shades of grey. It's kind of what do you have to do to control the law? What do you have to kind of bypass the law itself to control it? You know, it's um, 
it's 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 really it really brings up some kind of interesting points again throughout the movie that a lot of the dialogue and predicaments are spoken outwards and externally yet they aren't to um to over the top uh, where the subtlety gets sacrificed and we get an overstated type of commentary because Fanny Yoon's character and her father, the dialogue about their poor situation, being pressured about the triads, it, it's spelling out predicaments and their status, but they're not clumsy exposition dumps despite. And and that they want to be left alone, uh, communicating that to Robert Smart and what have you, that's meaningful, that's crucial, and uh, like a plea that's, that's felt. And uh, you know, not on the flip side, but alongside of all of that, you had Damien Laos, teacher character who's who wants to believe in good and justice. He, you know, he's brave to stand up to to the students, but he's also not respected. And that's another example of something and someone who's going to simmer and simmer and then boil and get emotional to the point where, again, the movie doesn't go off the rails, thankfully. They, yep. I mentioned that I have a beef with one aspect of the movie, and it's essentially for our the the conclusion of um, Sarah Lee's story, she the one who won an award. There's a a few things there that goes a little bit off the rails in terms of melodrama. It's it's tragic and it's felt and it's violent and it's sort of heinous and shocking. But it, it's the only instance in a very very good film where I thought it it's not quite there. It's good. It's not quite there. No fault of hers. It just felt like uh, yeah, we know it's a shit sandwich and we didn't need another one. Yeah, I kind of see her particular downfall as just like a teenage thing. I think it's kind of hitting home the fact that they are all kind of teenagers and they're young and you do kind of send a daft kind of emotional things when, when you're a bit younger. Maybe I think that's that's what causes her, you know, her downfall really is, is kind of like acting on those kind of youthful kind of rash impulses rather than kind of thinking it through. I suppose, I mean, that's that's how, how I saw it. I mean, I mean, she she's not bad, and there's also something very on point with the performances throughout the movie. You know, the tone and the frequency from you know any cast member, you know, in in the supporting camp or anyone who's in a scene, really, the various uh, students. Uh, but but obviously, yes, Fanny Yun is is quote unquote the lead here, and uh, her often non-verbal and frightened acting I think is uh, spot on because uh, she's dominated you know it's, it's humu- uh, not in a sexual way but like this um, they are humu- humiliating her yeah. uh, because they have this overheard and they know she witnessed something she went to the police and triads are relentless in that regard and it's clearly a fight you can't win even this um, individual one uh, but, but then again if you want to be you, you, you have to commend such a character because where would we be in society if no one said no yeah i'm I'm not gonna let this go on anymore it's relentless really what they do to her and um it's a relentless first third it's a relentless last four for one third or whatever uh it, but it, it really lets up and there's certainly no lulls there's no lulls and there's no lulls <laughs> no, there's no lulls oh turn it off i'm not interested so, uh, so even when they go big, Tom, do you think uh, when characters break down, like Damien Lau's character, you know, he's had enough, he's mad as hell, I'm not going to take it anymore. Uh, <laughs> his outburst in the classroom. Do, do you think, uh, for example, he and therefore Ringo handles that well in terms of being big but not too big and not letting it uh, go over the top? Yeah, no, no. Honestly, I feel like there's, there's never a point where I do think it's over the top and it's like cartoonish or borders on. 
you know, too much, too much, or let's kind of the emotions in terms of the narrative get too high. I think it, it's all played, you know, very realistically, and I think it's definitely, you know, I, I don't think you can really argue that it's melodramatic. I think it, it's dramatic and it's kind of potent drama rather than kind of melodramatic because it doesn't linger on these kind of things and kind of romanticizes the emotions. It kind of just goes, you know, this is kind of how it is. This is the reality and the kind of cruelty of the reality uh, and just plays it like that rather than, you know, yeah, kind of tries to romanticize it. There's nothing romantic. I think, uh, you know, Ringo has got that uh, facet to his directing style and, and that, that scene in the previous films and it will be seen kind of in, in, in the future as well. Like he, he, he does kind of have that facet to his, his directing style that he can kind of romanticize certain situations. But I think here it's just you know, relentless kind of uh, just darkness. So I, I, I don't think it's it's it ever gets too much where it stops being realistic in terms of the acting. And it's good because it's on con cinema too and melodrama was often big and it could hand have gone hand there. Hand in hand first yeah. time, yeah. yeah. yeah so it's good that someone makes it there relevant to the tone of this movie. Mm. You know, being a big outburst but not uh, going the lazy melodrama uh, route. Some minor notes before the finale. The one plot development uh, towards the back end of the film is that Fanny Yoon seems to be drawn to the triad lifestyle because she has a boyfriend. That uh, and she's more tolerant towards um, him because she he showcases kindness to her. So she she goes with the world via him. But Ringo makes no noise that she is. It's not like he's uh, announcing this sequence that she's now in the triad. Uh, you know, da, 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 Look at the plot development. He's, he's way too secure to go down those routes. Uh, so for a while he depicts it as uh, friends hanging out. But you know all that's needed is a spark. And then it's going to go downhill. And, it's kicking off, yeah. And, and sure enough, it does, because by this point, nothing is solved, really. She's just buying time, essentially, uh, without acting like she's buying time. Yeah. And uh, it, it it always kicks, you know, the finale kicks kicks off. We won't spoil it, of course, but unlike many Hong Kong movies that were great, but the, but the action was manufactured. Clearly, it's rehearsed. It's so great and overwhelming and shocking that Ringo Lam has gone from City on Fire, Prison on Fire to this, and still makes his particular type of violence uh, shocking and hard-hitting. And I don't think I've experienced uh, a Ringo Lam movie that I found um, distressing to watch until this one. Yeah, yeah. Because it's it's the culmination of themes that feeds into the action direction, because society stands helpless and everyone is just humming along along the downward spiral hoping that it will solve itself somehow but then you know everyone gets fed up and then it kicks off a spark i think i think i don't get too too deep too heady for uh for a sunday morning but um <laughs> it's like um I think I suppose in general in cinema there's a romanticism of, of life you know isn't there even kind of when it's smaller things happening or maybe darker things or, you know, happier things. There's always kind of this general way in cinema to kind of romanticism, the, the kind of romanticize it and kind of make it more beautiful or make it more kind of dramatic than it is. Um, and I think with this, and, and Ringo does that in the previous films and he will do that, you know, going forward in his filmography. But with this one, it's, it's, there's none of that. It's just kind of bleak and aggressive and, and, the violence just kind of happens and snaps and, and it doesn't, as you say, it doesn't feel 
you know, choreographed, although it is, and, and I suppose they choreographed it extremely tightly because of how dangerous, you know, some of the stunts were and, and some of the violence was towards the cast. But and, I mean, you can't be random about this, technically. I mean, yeah, I mean, yes, it's chaos, it, like it the club brawl. It does. I mean, the club yeah. brawl is something else, you know, you know, the stabbings, which is not hard to do because you have obviously fake knives and sound effects. But there's people wrestling and thrown over tables, thrown through glass and then end up in the staircase. And so I, I sum it up as because I don't want to mention too much about the final 15 minutes or whatever that there's a precision in chaos here there's nothing that happens towards anyone by accident technically so yes it will probably hurt to go through and over stuff but there's a precision in chaos here and that i a third movie into trademark ringo lamb violence there's clearly nothing he sort of randomly does there's precision here there's precision there. yeah there's precision to the filmmaking and the direction but it looks imprecise in terms of the narrative, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, so, some of the most shocking violence happens here, the way people, so some people die in, in this one, which, uh, you know, the characters that have been at the forefront and characters that have been a little bit more supporting. And it shows that you don't need to have evident bloodshed on screen to uh, to get that effect across, because it's just, uh, it's just animalistic. Yeah, it is. I think it's, it's, you know, again, it's argued before the, the, I said the best violence is a weird thing to say, but it's probably the most potent or most profound of, of the kind of violence that, that Ringo's known for, you know, in this film, arguably, because it's, it's just so kind of, just, just, just kind of unrelentless in its kind of, um, just darkness. Uh, so yes, I, I think I'll, con- I'll conclude my notes there and, um, and simply, simply say I recommend it. Tough time. If you if you could endure sitting on fire, prison on fire, and are drawn to how a director conveys themes and drama and violence, then School on Fire is going to feel like an upgrade, I think, because I I don't I don't think you've you I don't think you can liken Prison on Fire and Sitting on Fire to this because it it's uh, it feels uh, because of the commentary and realism they are executing it in that manner as well. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that, Ken. I think, I think in terms of you talking about it as a trilogy, I think there's definitely a, a build-up there uh, in terms of the kind of the aggression and the kind of darkness. It kind of gets tends to get a bit darker and get a bit more bleaker as the kind of trilogy progresses uh, and, and viewed as kind of a, a trifecta. Yeah, they've each got their own merits. Um, and I think, yeah, if you've watched the, the previous two films in the series, you can definitely... Well, I, I think there's 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 more for the trilogy to kind of reveal to you with this film, if that makes if that makes any sense. Um, but yeah, uh, any other notes then? Uh, I've got bagpipes are always a welcome uh, instrument on film scores, but no, just just interesting and off kilter and kind of puts the film off off kilter. I saw what you did there. So what you did there? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, kind of weirdly. It's almost like I don't know. It's like kind of. It puts it a strange kind of perspective on it, but it's it good in a way. It just kind of puts you off field when it, when you first start to watch it. It kind of puts you off balance, and then it kind of repeats itself. That kind of little um, that little motif. I'm in two minds if that's too much of him, but when I hear it within the movie and the scenes that they do kick in, it seems alright. But it, it seems like he's uh, 1997 commenting like you read about. I know. I was just about to say that it's almost got this kind of like. I want to say nationalistic's the wrong thing. 
I kind of, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the, the word is. It's kind of weird. It kind of just conveys images of kind of like, you know, loyalty to a flag or, you know what I mean? Or kind of a, a political kind of nature to it. It just, I don't know, it just brings up, it just conjures up kind of images, whether they, he did it on purpose or not. It just conjures up certain kind of images in my head, kind of, you know, politically and kind of nationalistically with, with the way the kind of country was. I, d- I don't know. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, in all simplicity, I think I saw it as it's a 1997 critique and a critique of uh, the then ruling British of Hong Kong that uh, this is when you, you're going to take over. Yeah, I mean, it definitely brings those images in my head. Um, but yeah, I mean, knowing knowing Ringo, there probably was you know a bit of a, a bit of a political kind of dig there with it. But it works for the film regardless and gives it this kind of odd um, odd atmosphere, which is which is good, which works for the film. Um, I think it I think it kicks in as soon as and this is not a spoiler. Uh, Lam Ching Ying enters the scene late in the movie, and I think the movie kicks in. At that point, it's a big crescendo moment, I think, um, or, or it starts to run below the scene in the uh, classroom towards the end, you know. Launching, he was like, smash those bagpipes on her, I'm not going on, Ringo, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going on, Ringo, get it, get it, get it on the tape in the background, mate, I'm not, I'm not having it. Yeah, it's it his pump-up music, <laughs> Lam's pump-up music. Um, I also got a note, that Alan Tam poster, which I think... <laughs> which... <laughs> Yeah. Was I'm it off sure. uh, the other side of Gentleman or just a random Alan no, Tan poster? No, I think it's a random just pin-up of him, I'm pretty certain. Um, again, like I was watching this the, the VHS rip of it, so I, I can't be certain, but I'm sure it's um, it's it's one of the early scenes where it's Fanny Yun's character, uh, Chu, and um, Sarah Lee's character, uh, Sandy, when they first start discussing about getting the money back to pay back, and she's going to lend her some money, and they're in her room it's there i'm sure on the door i just i just i just i just saw it and thought you kind of laughed that was kind of my i wrote uh, team tam on my tv screen in permanent marker by that point <laughs> yeah it's there for everything you watch now just to kind of remind you um and yeah just my last note is uh roy chung complete piece of shit but fashion god nonetheless Funnily enough, because he's uh, the movie sort of muted, especially on the VHS transfer. For, for, funnily enough, it's not like garish or anything here, but it's clearly eighties, but it's not uh, color, co- uh, colorful or neon or anything like that. Yeah. So it it doesn't make it timeless, but it doesn't stand out as like, geez, yes, it's an eighties movie. Yeah, so. yeah, no, it's uh, it's fantastic. There's some fantastic, uh, some wardrobe choices in this, but. Um, doesn't take away from the fact that he's a piece of shit in the film. So, <laughs> yeah, he's, 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 he's a well-dressed piece of shit, though, which is good. If you're going to be a piece of shit, you might as well, you know, wear a nice blazer. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, as for availability, though, uh, that uh, Rainbow VHS that Tai Seng distributed, it might turn up in again every now and again on online auctions, but the Joy Sells DVD and VCD, while listed out of stock on some sites, it's probably the most common one that you will encounter if you search for buy options online. Uh, and, and there's no sign of an upgrade as of this time that this is hitting Blu-ray or anything. So if you want to see this... Uh, quote-unquote uncut version that m- might be fully uncut or just uh, less cut than the theatrical version that it could be out there on, on the internet because it, obviously the tape isn't out there in you know thousands and thousands of copies aren't floating about out there so it, it's a mixture of you might be able to find it for a reasonable price but you might have to turn to online sources as well I know some people have uh, made a custom using the DVD print and then inserting the stuff from the VHS that was cut mm. from it, so they have a mixture of widescreen and uh, and cropped uh, 
uh, in that regard, and that's fine too. But uh, the, the VHS was more than watchable, uh, and uh, almost felt like having the aspect ratio compromised, the claustrophobia set in yeah, even uh, yeah, more. Yeah, it, it fits it, man. It fits. I think even just the kind of VHS kind of quality of it, and, and yeah, because a lot of the stuff it is shot quite tight and in your face. So I think it does. It does better, especially stuff in the classroom and. I think it definitely does. Uh, it does. I wouldn't say, you know, benefit because I've never actually seen. I think I've seen the the cut DVD, but obviously we've never seen this version with this running time on DVD in its original aspect ratio. So I think um, it it probably benefits in terms of the tone of the film. You're missing you're missing a bit of a bit of space there, but I don't yeah. think it's it's a compromise that you're going to have to take in terms of if you want the kind of uncut or as close to uncut as we can. Uh, version of the film so it's uh and and it wasn't uh cinema scope aspect ratio anyway so uh, the cropping isn't severe and most of the subtitles are in the frame so um that's uh so it's it's pretty much a win i i was fairly engrossed even in um, this version but it's not it's not ben-hur so i won't worry about nah, it holy shit. <laughs> i mean those movies were even wider back then so I'm, I'm like, yeah. not even two three five like two 0.5 or 2.7 like jesus christ right, yeah, yeah crop that to full frame and there's nothing left it's just just charlton heston's face <laughs> exactly <laughs> uh but all good my friend uh thought we did well but next time pat yourself on the back why don't you yep it's you know sometimes you uh you at least i do um you want to do good you, you want to convey your thoughts well even though you can you can't ever settle for you can't ever reach for perfection because that's just makes the job harder but i think yeah we conveyed our pros and cons and likes and dislikes very well and uh i can always go for like slightly less of me making up words i can always do with a bit of that so that's what i tend to strive for <laughs> less least amount of words made up or or um said wrong is, is my main goal in life yeah that was, podcast. yeah that was a bit of a lull, <laughs> lull in the discussion right <laughs> oh bringing it back kenny but anyway next time realism politics seemingly go out the window and ringo after speaking his mind uh, in real life and even after being in the doghouse for a while he returns and gives us for him hyper stylization in the form of full contact from 1992 so if you don't like what you see here get the funk out mate i know what you did there and that was good that was good there's no more than words that can convey my feelings about this film let's get the funk out of this episode and uh, and uh, on to the next but uh, let's finish this one off also really quickly for all your podcast on fire network needs uh, including uh, visiting uh, the back catalog of the director series on ringo lamb and kirk wong and uh, and what have you uh, visit podcastonfire.com all the relevant links from this episode and social media links uh, will be available in, in the show post and on the website anyway that's the long and short of it uh, Tom also has a review archive that includes a review of the Avenging Fist were you happy with that review back in the day did you like your work oh it's like it's like anything man. it's like a snapshot of that time isn't it but I thought back then it's pretty good I think it might be alright now I'll have to uh you know, I'll have to go back to it, but I'm sure my, my feelings are probably fairly similar to as they were back then. It was only a few years ago. Yeah, no one really liked that movie then, and I don't think it has uh, been reevaluated. Reval- uh, yeah, it's, it's finally, Criterion's finally releasing it, it's getting ready for uh, reevaluation. No, but Roy's in it, and Samo's in it, and, you know, so uh, there's, there's a nice cast there, so, I mean, check it out if you want, but... I think you probably have a better time reading my review. 
I, I mean, UK peeps could probably find it in a bargain bin or, anything, or something like that. Like uh, that, that uh, then you fist that Legends, yeah, yeah, got HKL. I'm sure you'll go find it for like 50p in a charity shop. So, so, so buy the Engine Fist and stay for the vcinemashow.com review. Ganja fund. <laughs> <laughs> keep, keep Roy and Ganja for the next few years. Buy a Engine Fist, buy as many copies as you can, and buy the upcoming Criterion uh, Blue 4K to support Roy. Love and peace. Good on fire, Dan. And we're going to move on uh, next week. You'll hear the episode on full contact. So uh, I've been Kenneby. Uh, with me was Tom K. W. Signing us out. Uh, sending us out with a, with a lol, hopefully. Not a lol. Yeah, you can have some, la- you can have some la- laser beams or some sound effects or something. Make this lol interesting, Ken, with your editing techniques. Yeah.